Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So let me recap where we are at very quickly. We have looked at the different parts of the Christian armor as we battle the most powerful being in this world. And his name is Satan. We've looked at the belt of truth as a foundation of our faith. We've examined the breastplate of righteousness and its power to protect us against all sorts of schemes that Satan throws our way. We're fitted with shoes of the gospel of peace that allows us to plant our feet with this wondrous gospel so that we can stand against the wiles of the devil. We raise up our shield of faith to guard against all the flaming arrows that Satan constantly throws at us. And we put on the helmet of salvation so that we would never grow weary with doubt or lose heart because we know we've been saved by from Satan's evil plans. Today we go on the offensive. And to do so, we look at the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we'll look at two aspects of this. The first is that the Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit, makes Scripture the sword. And secondly, the sword is our primary offensive weapon. So I want you to get ready to fight for your life today and fight for those around you. So first, let's look at the fact that the Spirit makes Scripture the sword. We're going to read verse 17 again and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, many of us think that when we have this book, in it we have this sword of the Spirit. But the book itself is not a magic charm. We are not Muslims. We don't believe as Muslims believe that the Quran was dictated word for word, given to Muhammad in Arabic. And therefore, the very book itself is holy and should be treated with utter holiness. So that doesn't mean that we Christians take our Bibles and throw it around and leave it on the floor as if it's nothing. But at the same time, we don't worship this book. And I, I think there's a misunderstanding when it comes to the doctrine of inerrancy or the power of God's word to think that this book somehow has magical power to actually do something in our lives. You might be thinking, whoa, that's actually what I always thought. But no, we don't believe that. We really believe this is a book with words and letters and written on pages. So... Here's the, let me push this a little further. It, for many of us, we grew up with this idea of quiet time and we've taken the acronym QT and say, Hey, did you have your QT today? Did you have your quiet time today? And we think that inherently within that, meaning if I read the Bible, then therefore I have a power and that is the sword that fights against Satan. May I say something that's going to sound radical is that that actually doesn't fight Satan. That to read the Bible itself isn't what actually guards our hearts and goes on the offensive against Satan. 
that to have your quiet time does not guarantee that you are a Christian. It doesn't mean that on that particular day you're going to be blessed. And to not have your quiet time doesn't mean that you're going to be miserable that day or you're going to have a car accident or that you're going to trip and fall and hurt yourself. You're not going to have a bad day and think, oh, I had, I had a really, really terrible day. I was yelled at at work. I, I uh, had to get stitches. No, it's all because I didn't have my quiet time today. I think there is this sort of quid pro quo idea that reading the Bible equates prosperity inherently and that the two are tied in together so tightly. To do that and to think that way is not Christianity. That's called superstition. And it's closer to animism and witchcraft than it is to the gospel. So you might be thinking, what is he saying? This Again, this sounds so radical. Know this is that the idea of a quiet time has been around probably for about 60 years. And it actually hasn't been around that long. The Bible actually, scripture has a very different view about what it means to have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And there's a reason why Paul qualifies the sword as of the spirit. Let me read to you 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 14, because I think Paul describes and explains a little bit more of what he's talking about. He says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. And this is a key point. That we might understand the things freely given us by God. Listen to this. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, what is Paul saying? What Paul is saying is that the Holy Spirit is the one who helps us to understand the word of God. And when we read scripture, it's actually impossible to understand the things of God without the Holy Spirit. That means that it is possible to have this book read it, study it, underline it, even memorize it, and still not have the things of God, not to understand who he is, to know who he is, to appreciate who he is, to love who he is. We need the Holy Spirit. He is the primary means by which we have any trust in God's word. Without that, without the person of the Holy Spirit, you know, impacting you, giving you insight, then you are what Paul says, you are a natural person who does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. No matter how intelligent you are, no matter how many sermons you've listened to, no matter how many degrees you have, even at theological seminaries, you cannot understand the things of the Spirit because to understand the things of the Spirit, they are spiritually discerned. They, They are provided by the Holy Spirit. It's not provided by the Bible, this book. It's provided by the Holy Spirit who then causes you when you read it to understand. I think we far too often focus on a system of understanding God's word 
than we do on looking to the Spirit to open our eyes to understand God's Word. And I don't want to put down systems because I do think there's a place for them, whether it's Robert Murray McShane's system of reading the Bible or the Bible devotionals. There's places for that. But do not think that those are the end goal. That is to say that somehow you can read a devotional and read the Bible for a day and then you just go off and forget everything. It doesn't impact the way you live. Think about it this way. Did you know that for so many years of church history, there was no written Bible? And we see, here's the problem with us. We are a product of our age. We've had a written Bible. We have many Bibles. As I was cleaning the church, I found many Bibles, a lot, very old. And they're just laying around all around, all over the place. So we tend to think about it from that lens is, well, reading the Bible is taking a book and reading it. But for much of church history, there was no written Bible. You know, there was in the Middle Ages, there were, there was nothing. And even in the early church, maybe there was a few written recorded transcripts and the church that was there would pass along these transcripts and they would read it and everyone would gather to read. They wouldn't gather to listen to a sermon. They would gather to listen to a Bible and then someone teach from that little, I'm sorry, not listen to a Bible, but to a transcript of parts of scripture. And then they would um, study it and exegete it and understand it. And so they work together to do that. So there were limited copies. People are gathering around to read scripture, but how did it impact those Christians? Do you know how many people died for the sake of Christ during that period? How many people would sacrifice everything, their families, their lives? They didn't have a full Bible in their hands. They actually had parts, but you know what they had is spiritually discerned, spirit-inspired scripture. They had God's word. They had the sword of the spirit. There were no, there was no quiet time. There were no devotionals or Bible reading plans, and people didn't try to get through their devotions to like put a little check mark on it, even in their heart, saying, "Okay, I did it, and now I'm going to go live, do my." duty and do the rest of my life because I did my duty. They cherished whatever they could get because the Holy Spirit had opened their eyes and the smallest pieces of scripture, they devoured it and it was the word of God. See, it's not about reading a book. It's about seeing God's word through the lens of his spirit. This isn't just for the Middle Ages. This is even happening now. I mentioned Nick Rick, uh, Nick Ripkin's book, Insanity of God, before, and he tells a story about the church in China. I'm going to read to you this. He says, early one morning, this is from Nick Ripkin's perspective, I was surprised to come out of my room and see a small group of men, and these are um, house church pastors, walking among the entire assembly of house church leaders filling the courtyard. There were probably about 250 and for house church leaders in China to gather that many, it, it was, it's virtually impossible, but they did it for a very special meeting and it put everybody's lives at risk. 
From a distance, I could see that they were tearing some books into shreds and handing loose pages to those sitting on the ground. As I walked closer, I was shocked to realize they were tearing a Bible into pieces. Noting my reaction, David Chen hurried over to explain, only seven of the house church leaders at this conference own their own copy of the Bible. This is out of 250. House church leaders, seven own their own copy of the Bible. Some of us met last night, and we decided that when the conference ended, each leader would go home to a city, village, or farm with at least one book of the Bible. So that is what we are doing. We are asking each leader what books of the Bible they have not yet been able to teach, and we are giving them each at least one new book. I could only imagine what a joy it would have been for those whose portion of Scripture was the book of Genesis, the Psalms, or the Gospel of John. But I felt a little bad for the church leader who who has handed a smaller portion like Philemon. (laughs) You know, I tell you that that is the word of God, the sword of the spirit. Do you see what I mean? I think too many of us get so caught up with, okay, I have to have my quiet time today and it's going to be a couple of verses or one chapter. And we, we have no heart for God and his word. But here you have these men and women who are starving for God's word and they're reading maybe Romans or Philemon or First Kings over and over again and trying the best they can to understand who he is. That person can fight against the enemy. Whereas someone who's reading the Bible academically or just to get by or to dutifully be a, a better Christian from a moral perspective or a prosperity perspective, that person doesn't know how to fight against the enemy. Satan flees when believers approach the Bible, the word like this. This only happens when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes. So what can we do? How do we? And you might be saying, I'm struggling exactly with that. What do I do? Now, honestly, first is we need to repent. We need to say, Lord, I have looked at your word and I have not delighted in it. I have seen it with dry heart, dry eyes. And I ask that you forgive me and remind me once again of how precious this word is. Repentance over that type of heart is a really wondrous place. It also means repentance. Remember, it means to change, to turn around. And to turn around means, okay, then... Look at scripture through the lens of belief and faith versus always saying, this is just to get through the day, or this is just to move on. And I just need to fulfill my Christian duties. There's an unbelief in our hearts, which leads to laziness, which leads to a lack of a heart's desire. So after we repent, we actually say, I want to change and Lord Help me, cause me to, and the Holy Spirit, open my eyes. So every time you read the Bible, take even a few moments to say, Lord, right now my heart is not right. And I need you, Holy Spirit, to open my eyes to your word that I might see what you have to tell me, not about myself and my day and how I can be prosperous, but show me more of yourself in your word. And when you do such things, you will see God not only open your eyes to his word, but he will show you the means by which you can defend yourself against the enemy's schemes. So the sword is the sword of the spirit. Never forget that. It's not a book. 
It's not something that you just have to get through to the, through the day. It is not QT and devotions and quiet time. It is God's word, and we stand humbly before it. Second is the sword is our primary offensive weapon. The word Paul uses to describe this sword, there's two different types of swords that were used in Paul's day. One was a long, broad, broad sword, and it was meant to fend off from far distance. It was, uh, it, it take, it took big swings, you know, you can imagine it, right? And there was a second sword. It was a short sword. The short sword was very meticulous. It had a very specific purpose. It was meant for strategies. And you, you had in mind, I'm going to pierce the heart. I'm going to go after the kidneys. I'm going to do whatever it takes to defeat my enemy. And that's what Paul uses to describe this sword, not the broad sword, not this big stroke sword, but rather very specific thrusts to kill the enemy. And so I want you to think about that. Think of specificity. Think of the sword of the spirit being used intentionally with focus, meaning that to fight against the enemy with God's word is not to just simply have a broad sense of Bible stories. And that's why Bible stories, you can have grown up with knowing about Noah and his ark. You can learn, learn about Daniel and the lion's den, and you can learn all these things and you get these morals. But that doesn't lead to any faith, actually. You don't need those, um, you don't need faith and eyes of faith to understand those stories, which are beautifully written. But kids can learn them and they're great, but they don't give you a heart for Jesus. Instead, we actually have to know how to utilize God's word. And we have to realize that it has to be used in specific instances and circumstances. And to get to that place, you have to know it by memorizing it, and then by studying it, and then by learning how to apply it. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, if you're not actively engaged in growing and studying and learning God's word, then you won't actually be able to fight Satan and his schemes against you. Know this also, Satan knows God's word. He knows it so well that if you ever look at the different instances where Satan quotes scripture, he does it by leaving out a few words or adding in a few words. That's how smart, cunning, and crafty he is. He knows God's word that deeply that he knows if he just takes out one word, it changes the whole meaning of what God is saying. He did it to Eve. He did it to many different people in the New Testament church. He tries to do it to Jesus in the desert. And if you don't know God's word, if you have simply a vague, uh, like a vague, foggy notion of it, you're not going to be able to fight. Let me uh, give you an illustration. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I have, and I know my kids have, which is if you study for a test, and you could study for hours, and then take a test, and you think, oh, I did well, and you get the grade back, and you got, you did really bad. Ever happened to any of you? That's really frustrating. So the question is, why does that happen? Why does it happen that you study, say, for 10 hours on a test, and you think you do really well on the test, and you get a D or a C? Why, why does that happen? One psychologist that I was uh, listening to was describes this as cognitive dissonance. And he makes the case that you can 
spend hours studying something, but while you're studying, if you're listening to music or having a conversation, you know, you're at the library and you're having a conversation with a friend and you go back to studying and you, and you have this interrupted, broken idea and all these distractions, then that 10 hours is almost virtually useless. So you've almost wasted your time. I tend to think that Christians, so many of us have that same cognitive dissonance in a spiritual sense. That is to say that we think we know God's word because maybe you're listening to a sermon, but maybe as you're watching right now, you're also checking your fantasy football scores. You're also checking your laundry list or of things that you have to do. Oh, this is my schedule for the week. And when that happens, when you're trying to read scripture and you're also getting notifications. So if you're reading the Bible and doing um, in the morning and you happen to be reading it on an iPad or your phone and suddenly all your notifications are popping up or you got a text and this. And I remember John Piper talking about this and he would say, if you're the type of person who gets distracted by that, you can, you, sh- you must never, never read electronically the Bible. Um, it's because it happens. We, we get so distracted from God's word. We actually don't have any clues to what he's saying to us. And when that happens, then is it any wonder we have no defense against the enemy when he attacks our souls, when he causes doubts to fill our minds, when he in, in, just disrupts us with all sorts of accusations and schemes? Because we haven't understood God and his word. We haven't settled in to really say, Lord, Show me your word. The psalmist says in Psalm 119.11, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Hiding God's word deep in your heart, it takes time. It takes meditation. It takes work. It takes a openness to what God would have to show you. It takes exposure to God's word, but not just exposure. It takes a rumination. It takes a a sinking deep, a soaking in, a marinating of God's word in your heart, a reflection of saying, this is who I am, oh God, change me, transform me, use me, show me. And if we don't act on God's word, we can't know him either. Listen to what James says in James 1, 23 and 24. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. So it's not just the rumination. After that, it's, okay, now you got to go and live it out. And if you're not living it out, what James is saying is, then you're going to forget everything that was said, everything you learned. I mean, it's wonderful that you're sitting there thinking, I'm changed. Or, you know, I'm, I'm reading this text on, on, uh, selfishness and greed. And I realize that my life is just so filled with a love of money. And then you go out and God says, Hey, today I want you to give a thousand dollars to hands at work, uh, for the 5k. And then you say, but Lord, I have, I have these bills. Well, you don't even say, but Lord, you think I have these bills. Um, I wanted to, I'm saving up to buy this really nice camera. Um, all right. I, I can't do that because, and the list is endless. You know, the enemy starts attacking and he wants to take that seed that was planted and rob you of God's joy of trust. 
And so from there, then it's, I don't want to do it. And you forget. You're like a man who looks in the mirror and has forgotten what he looks like. That's what happens when we do not actually act out. So there's multiple steps. If you're saying, help me, show me, Paul, to how to utilize the sword of the Spirit, then it's first repent of our hardness of heart against his word. Then it's, Lord, open my eyes. Then it's rumination, meditation, memorization. And then it's, okay, now let's live it out. And if we're not doing all of that, then this is a book for us. It's a religious book. It's a book of morals. It's a book of Bible stories. It's a book of religion and duties and obligations, and it's a heavy burden. It's so heavy for us. We can't carry it because that's all it is. It's not a delight. Read Psalm 19. It says, your word is sweeter than honey. Because the person who then goes out and is convicted, I'm, I'm greedy, I'm, I'm cheap, I'm self-centered, and then I never give. But then you go and do it. And the Lord always says, you know, I'm going to bless you far more. Might not be money. Doesn't mean he's going to give you now, oh yeah, invest. This is not prosperity gospel. But the way he's going to bless you is a love for himself and he will show you great and mighty things. Open your mouth wide, as the psalmist says, and I will fill it, God says to the psalmist. So recognize that when we start living in God's word, that's when we're forever changed. And that's when we understand words like Hebrews 4, 12, which says this, For the word of God, speaking of a sword, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. I have this, uh, we have this Japanese knife in our house. It's a kitchen knife. The Japanese seem to, they make really great knives and it's a, you know, kitchen knife. It is so sharp. I mean, just one wrong slip and you have a slit finger or something, something's wrong, right? So what, listen to what the Hebrews writer is saying that your, God's word is sharper than any knife, any sword, because it cuts not just through to your skin, and it doesn't just cut bone, it goes to your spirit, to your soul. And it gets to the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When this is truly inspired by the spirit, be careful. Dangerous. There should be a big, a big, you know, one of those nuclear sort of warnings, biohazard warnings on this book. And that's why governments are scared of this book. Dictators, tyrants are scared. Satan quakes, not at the book, but the Holy Spirit who inspires God's word because it can transform lives. It can overthrow kingdoms. It can change the world forever. And it has and it does. God's word fundamentally is meant to cut your heart. It's meant to go to your soul. It's meant to show you that you are in desperate need of a savior. It's meant to bring you to a place of worship before God, to bring you to your knees. It's meant to bring tears out of your eyes because your soul has been affected. Everything else then beyond that is a, is a, uh, a fruit of this fundamental effect. When there's a transformation, then you go and do likewise. You go and sin no more. You go and feed the poor. You give a drink, cup of cold water. 
We do all that we do because we've been cut to the heart. To know God's word is to be transformed and to act and to live. And when that happens, Satan flees. He runs. You have resisted him and he will flee from you. One clear model and example of this is Jesus himself in the desert in Matthew 4. I want you to notice a, a few things. Just recall the story because we don't have too much time to talk about this, to go into the exegesis of that passage. But first, Satan quotes God's word. I think for those of you who know that story, you know that he does that. But he manipulates it. He drops out a few words that's written in the Hebrew scriptures in that text, and he adds a few words, and he changes its purpose. So if you don't realize that Satan can and does do this to God's word, then you're susceptible to his schemes. Cult groups do this. They do exactly this. They know God's word pretty well. Not well enough, but very well. Because Satan knows God's word very well. But it's not just cult groups that do this. Authors do this. Pastors do this. Um, if, and if you're not, when you're studying the Bible, we have to be, like Paul describes the Bereans in Acts 17, we have to be a people who are constantly checking and seeing, does this align with what God's word says? And realize that this Bible without the spirit is dangerous to your soul. It actually can do severe damage. That's why simply going to random Bible studies that you sort of hear about, you don't really know, that can be more dangerous than not knowing the Bible at all. And think about that for a moment. It is more dangerous for you to go to just some random study that you say, you know, my friend's having this Bible study at his house and they're studying Romans. And if you just go thinking, oh, that's great. They're studying the Bible. I want to study the Bible. I believe that's God's word, so I'm just going to go. I tell you, if you don't know what's being studied there, that is more dangerous than if you never opened the Bible in the first place. Because you know, first of all, there is a Satan. That Satan knows God's word. He knows how to manipulate, twist God's word to cause you to turn away from God rather than turn towards him. Which is all the more reason why we have to know God's word faithfully. We have to understand it. We, we can't be lazy about it. We can't think of it as something that is insignificant. It has significant power to shape and mold the way you think, how you lead your family, how you view the world. Second, Jesus responds to each false use of God's word with faith in the word of God. Because what Satan does, and this is how one clear way you know it's a satanic use of God's word, is that Satan always tries us, tries to get us to take the short-term fix, to want pleasure in the moment, to want to feel good in the moment. To want some change to happen immediately. We want a miracle. We want a sign. We want something fixed right now in our lives. And the promise is, here's the Bible. If you just know it, your life will be changed forever immediately. And it will change materially for the better. It will uh, change physically for the better. It will change uh, intellectually for the better. 
But Jesus, every time Satan tried to promise that, and if you, if we were to, again, study Matthew 4, you'll see it. Every temptation is that promise from Satan. If you just do this, you can feel so good right now. Just turn the stones to bread. Then you can eat. No, just take all, like, I'm promising you all this. You don't have to go to the cross. That's so hard. Every single promise of Satan is a quick fix. And that is exactly the opposite of what God promises in his word. The Lord ultimately promises that you will find pleasures evermore. Psalm 16. But it's in his time, not yours. But Satan always tries to get us to want our fix, our change, our our transformation in our time. And when that happens, you know that is satanic. You know that is evil. God's word points to one reality constantly. Trust in God's word, his timing, and he will never fail you. But it's all about his timing. Or as Isaiah 48 says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. The last thing is this, is that The word of God always points, not just we need to think about it specifically, we need to think about this idea that the word of God points to the gospel. We see this connection when Paul tells this same church, the church in Ephesus, this in chapter one, verse 13, he says, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That verse has everything in it, if you notice. The spirit, the word of truth. And the word of truth, what is the word of truth pointing to? The gospel of your salvation, that you believed in Jesus. So the gospel, God's word, is all about pointing to the gospel of your salvation, that you believe in him. This tie-in is so clear, and it's, possible when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to that. We see this when we read God's word. We have to be moved by the gospel. The gospel points us to what Christ has done and every aspect of God's word. We're studying in Old Testament theology um, all sorts of things. We're in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. But all of that should point us to this thread of saying, God is saving. God is saving. We've sinned. God is saving. And he's doing all that he can to point us to that end. God has a redemptive plan. That plan has been enacted. And it's going to be ultimately brought about through Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus is walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, following his resurrection, this is how Luke describes it in Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now think about that for a moment. Jesus had been with, I mean, he had been with um, all of his disciples for how long? Three years, day and night. What do you think he was talking about? I, I mean, maybe once in a while talking about some random things, but most of the time, He's talking about the mo- about the law and f- him fulfilling the law and the prophets. In fact, we see that all throughout the Gospels. So it's not like this is the first time they ever heard this. 
But you know what? It's the first time they ever heard it. Because for the first time, their eyes were opened. They finally saw what Jesus had always been saying, which is that all of Scripture points to the reality that I've come to save the world from sin. They grew up in synagogues. They knew the Hebrew Scriptures. They knew Genesis, Leviticus, 1 Kings, Isaiah, Micah. They had heard those and all the rest. So do you see, it's possible to hear, to study, to learn, to grow up in, to hear messages about, but to have no idea about the gospel. You can read God's word and not really get it at all. You could read it, study it, have quiet times, have devotions, try to live morally, try to live rightly, go to church. You could be giving to all sorts of missions, organizations, and agencies. You can be a missionary, a pastor, and yet still have no idea that the word of God points to the gospel of Christ. And when that happens, we fall susceptible to the devil because the devil's schemes are all about causing us to not have a helmet of salvation, not have the belt of truth that points to Christ, not to have the shield of faith that is raised up because Jesus is the one who on that cross bore our sin so that we are not susceptible to those arrows and those darts that are coming our way. God's word pointing to the righteousness of Christ given to us, uh, that we are adopted as sons and daughters, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All of that, because it's in God's word from Genesis to Revelation, is what empowers us to fight this fight of faith. And if we fail to see that, we will fall susceptible. We will be susceptible to Satan's schemes. Listen to Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in this while we are still sinners. Christ died for us. And I could have put up a hundred verses like that, that point to this idea. God, in his word, by his spirit, always shows us his son. And by doing so, when we are transformed by his word and that gospel, when we are acting it out in our conversations with our spouses, when we're at our lowest of lows, when we're having conflict, and in that moment where you say, no, I'm, I'm not going to be the first one to initiate reconciliation. And then something sinks into your soul, God's word, by the Spirit. And you say, and he says, be reconciled. Go. Sin no more. How many times should you forgive? Seven times? No, 70 times seven. And the word just keeps on coming. And then it's not just sitting there. You, your feet, you start dragging your feet. You make your way. You're, you force your mouth to open. You say, I'm sorry, I have sinned against you, against my Lord. Do you see, it's the action based on faith, even though you don't feel it, but you know it to be true, that destroys the works of the devil. It changes people, it changes lives, it changes society. Let me close with this story. Chet and Brenda were married and they joined Wycliffe Bible Translators. They intended to move to Carabayo, the Carabayo village in Colombia. And they began learning their language, but God had other plans for them. And 
he had closed the door to, for them to go to this, these people. So they decided to go to the Carahona Indians in Colombia. After weeks of preparation, they were on their, uh, on the verge of moving their family, their young family to this village. And something happened. Um, he had gone, Chet had gone ahead to make plans and seven armed gunmen appeared early that morning into the SIL office in Columbia. And when everyone denied that, because they were looking for the director of SIL in Columbia, when everyone denied that they knew where to find him, they took Chet instead. Two days later, the terrorists gave demands. They wanted Wycliffe out of Columbia by February 19th, and if they left, Chet's life would be spared. So people all around the world heard of Chet's situation. They joined in prayer and praying for his release. Then on January 24th, Brenda received a letter from Chet assuring her that he was alive and well. Chet shared regarding his captors, we've talked, we've argued, we've even become friends. We respect each other, though we view the world from opposite poles. His letter also quoted scripture, especially the Psalms, and it appeared as if Chet's request for a Spanish Bible had been granted. And with scripture in hand, he seemed uplifted in spirit. He was even pictured in the newspaper in Colombia playing chess with his captors. The next few weeks were filled with rumors, though, of Chet's death. There was bombings and uncertainty. Finally, seven weeks after Chet was taken hostage, his body was found in a bus with a single bullet to the chest. He was only 28 years old. And just two days before he was taken captive, Chet said to Brenda these words. He said, It's okay for someone to die for the sake of getting the word of God to the minority people of Colombia. Chet died at the hands of his captors, but through his death and his captivity, Christ's love was proclaimed and lived out to so many people in Colombia that it was said that after Chet was killed, the translators were embraced in that land, and they were able to finally bring the gospel and the Bible into that land in a place where they were never able to go before. And that's how it works in Satan's world, but ultimately in God's ultimate world. Satan always thinks he wins. And the way he does it, he tries to stop God's word. Because as I said, this word is dangerous. It is dangerous for Christians who do not know how to use it. It is most dangerous for Satan. And he knows that when Christians do know how to use it and brings it to bear, that Satan's schemes are done. He flees. But it is a spirit-empowered scripture which points to the gospel that is the good news of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, do you desire it? Or is it a burden to you? Do you submit yourself to it? Meaning you actually act on it. Or is it just some nice book that you read every once in a while or even daily? But as a Christian, you say, I've done my duty just to read it, but you don't want to change. Are you asking God and saying, Oh God, change me through your word. Holy Spirit, show me the truth of your word and help me to apply it no matter how hard it is. And think of the most difficult problems of your life and say, one, God's word has answers. 
Two, many times there are not going to be answers you like. Three, when you trust his word and actually do it regardless of how hard it is to respond, he will show you great and mighty things. He will show you new things. And when you do that, you will cut the enemy down forever. My friends, take up the sword of the Spirit. It is the word of God, and it can destroy the works of the devil. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, for many of us, we have looked at this word. We've opened the word of God with, without faith. We've seen it as a religious book, something we do our duty with to have a quote, quiet time. And when we have this quiet time, no wonder it doesn't change us because it's just a religious duty. It's just something we've grown up hearing that at a retreat that Christians have quiet times. We have devotions. Oh Lord, we repent of our sin of unbelief when we do such things. And we ask instead, oh God, Holy Spirit, that you would change us. You would transform us. You would open our eyes to show us areas that we need to change about ourselves. Help us to do the difficult. Help us to take up the challenge of living this life in faith. And help us to act on your word and to make a difference in this world. And most of all, to resist the power of the enemy. And we know when we do so, you will give us pleasures evermore. You will never leave us nor forsake us. Nothing can snatch us out of your hand. That there is not even death nor life that can rob us of the joy of knowing Christ Jesus. So we turn to you and we ask that you be glorified, Lord, as we respond to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.